You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm by myself. My partner, Angie, is still recovering a little bit from having her baby a few weeks back. She is doing awesome. Uh, her and baby Max are doing amazing, and she'll be back on the podcast here in the next couple of weeks as we start redoing our species, jumping back into the swing of things together. So thank you for all the nice messages and for your understanding, and hopefully the interviews we've been rolling out, you've really enjoyed. But today, I just kind of wanted to do a, a recap of where we are in conservation. And this kind of goes back to episode zero. And, and it's funny, I go back to that episode and Angie and I always laugh about how bad the audio quality was. It always, it always is with a, a new podcast as you figure things out. But I remember that episode like it was yesterday because I was excited to start this podcast. I didn't predict, you know, going on, we're three and a half years in that we would still be going and learn all the things we've learned, talk to all the people we've talked to. It's just been an amazing journey for the both of us. And we're going to keep, keep going. We're going to keep going, you know, to the tens of thousands of you out there listening. We, we really appreciate your support. And, you know, listening week in, week out. But in this episode, I just kind of wanted to give a recap of what's going on around the planet. And I know, you know, right now we're at the tail end. So in 2021, in in the early part of the year, we're at the tail end, hopefully, of this COVID pandemic for, for many countries. Other countries are still in the midst of it, in the middle of it. And we don't know what the future is going to hold in the next couple of years. Hopefully, you know, for humanity's sake, with the vaccines that are being rolled out, we can get that to to all the countries of the world and and get back to kind of some somewhat normalcy, even though things don't we don't feel like things will ever be the same. And it's going to be interesting from a conservation point of view, how we come out of this this COVID pandemic. I, I know of conservation organizations, friends working around the planet that are that are still in limbo. They are still not able either to get out to, to sites to do their research studies, or they're not able to implement their conservation plans because of COVID. So we don't know what the impact all of this is having. We do know like ecotourism obviously has fallen off a cliff and that is going to have negative impacts, obviously, on many parts of the globe that depend on ecotourism to support conservation. So that is not, who knows what that where the, what that's going to look like. And we'll, we'll definitely, in this podcast, we'll definitely be keeping our eyes to that and talking to the experts and invite some more back on, possibly, to talk about what they're doing, how they've been handling the, the crisis. And in this podcast, you know, Angie and I together, we've covered over 140 different species. Most of them are endangered or, you know, close to extinction, whereas some of the others we have covered are doing okay. You know, talk about some of those animals. 
And then we've, we've interviewed over 80 experts. We've actually interviewed a bunch of kids too. Hopefully you enjoy those podcasts, the future of conservation. And we've learned so much from these experts in these species. And, and there's so many more to cover and there's so much more to look into. But I would say each week, hopefully what we learn, we're passing on to you and you're learning with us. You know, some species that come to mind that are that are almost extinct or in decline that we've talked about, the, the vaquita porpoise is going, I think that one's definitely going to go extinct. It, it, I know people are still fighting for the maybe dozen that are left. And when we covered, we first started this back in the end of 2017, there was maybe 30 to 40 vaquita porpoises left. I think they think there's less than 10 left. So I think we're seeing that species going to go extinct. You know, the Javan rhino, they're in, they're critically endangered. You know, I know the project to bring them all into the BOMAs to protect them was on pause with COVID. So again, where researchers and conservationists aren't able to travel freely to get down there to help them. So hopefully they're doing okay. I go back to some one of our earliest episodes, the catball langer, again, a species of monkey on Catball Island. You know, that's a species that was heading towards extinction. Orangutans heading towards extinction as Indonesia and other parts of Southeast Asia continue to destroy prime orangutan habitat. They are in deep trouble. Species like the Saola, one that we didn't really ever intend to cover, but we we did. And, you know, in Vietnam, one of those. So, I mean, you go around the, around the planet and, and there's so many species that, that are struggling for survival. Now, we have talked about other species that we're maintaining. I mean, some good news. Definitely don't want this to be a total downer podcast, but like the Southern White Rhino, where years earlier it looked like the Southern white rhino was, was on a uh, fast track to extinction. It seems in the past year now, who knows after COVID, but even though they are still were being poached at terrible rates, the population is maintaining, meaning they're not gaining ground, but they're not losing ground. So we love to tell those stories too, because a lot of that is conservation plans in action. Now, other species that we've covered are doing awesome, rebounding, surviving. We're seeing bald eagles. You know, one of our favorite podcasts that we did are rebounding nicely. Gray wolves have come back nicely, even though there's still a lot of issues, especially the human wildlife conflict with gray wolves that we've covered quite a bit. But at least their populations are are increasing in parts of the world. One of our favorite stories we told was the bison, American bison, how they were down to a few hundred left. And now you have tens of thousands uh, running around in the wild. White sharks have rebounded nicely. Red kangaroos, like kangaroos and, and, and other species in Australia, certain species are, are doing well and increasing in numbers, which is good. So in this podcast, we always try to stay positive. We always try to bring the good news because, you know, obviously if you keep saying bad news, bad news, bad news, people turn it off. It's just it, it, being, being a downer all the time is not fun. And that's not the intention of, of today's episode. Today's episode is to highlight some of the hard truths of what's going on out there and why 
each of us need to take individual responsibility for ourselves in trying to make a difference and at least make a difference in our daily lives, in, in our food choices, in how we treat energy, our energy consumption, purchasing options, all of those things. If some of the knowledge we can spread to you makes you take action, then Angie and I are very excited that we did our jobs. We did our jobs in spreading education and, and, and getting people to, to alter behaviors, right? So the hard truth of this is the reports from around the world, it, it, it's painting a dire picture of nature, of our ecosystems. And I'm going to give some statistics and share some of the knowledge that we've learned. If, if you haven't covered you know, all 200 plus episodes that we've put out there, you know, some of the things that, that we've learned from, from a lot of these experts and a lot of our own research that we've done. And I remember that first episode because this is what really spurred me to action, you know, geez, almost 10 years ago. I still remember sitting in my office at the University of Florida reading this study or these studies on this sixth mass extinction. Scientists wondering if we're at the beginning of it or maybe in the middle of it. And it just really opened my eyes as a scientist and as an educator. And then that spurred me into action to alter the research I was doing you know, switching from domestic animals into endangered species, into becoming a voice to my students about this, enlightening them, giving talks uh, at multiple club meetings, and even to my own department colleagues and others around campus, and then led to the formation of this podcast. So the whole idea that we're in this six mass extinction now, when you think of a mass extinction, you don't think of the mammoth at the end of the Ice Age. That was a loss of a lot of megafauna, ground sloths, saber-toothed cats. I mean, and that's only like 10,000 years ago. That wasn't that long ago in the geological time frame. You know, human beings were running around with mammoths and saber-toothed cats and all these other large mammals that went extinct at the end of the Ice Age. A mass extinction, and there's only been five pre five previous to what I believe were in the six, where three quarters of life died out in less than three million years. So a short they call it a short geological time frame. So when something changes in the planet and it takes million, you know, less than like again, less than three million years. It doesn't take a hundred years. These these previous five did not happen in a decade or like I said, a hundred years, 500 years, they actually took a few thousand years or a million to 2 million years for three quarters of all life to die out on earth. And, you know, obviously scientists that study this can go back and look in the geological layers and find these mass extinctions. So the first mass extinction we, we have found happened over 443 million years ago when the planet was an aquatic life and three quarters of all life in the oceans died. Then you had one. The second was 350 million years ago. The third happened over 250 million years ago. And that was the one 
you read about it where almost all life disappeared, where the earth almost became a dead planet. It was, it was very severe. You had massive climate change. You had volcanic eruptions. It just the reading the science on it, going back to that, it's like things in the deep, deep ocean survived it. And then life began again. The fourth was early dinosaurs, early reptiles, amphibians died off. And that was 200 million years ago. And then the fifth was the one that a lot of us can remember because of popular movies, things like that. And that was the fifth mass extinction 65 million years ago. That was the end of the dinosaurs and the rise of mammals and other species. Right. So those are the, the previous five. And now... And I've said this many times in different podcasts, we're in the six or we're at the beginning of the six or what they think is the six. And what's scary is we're losing species faster than we did in the previous five mass extinctions. So if you imagine, you know, and, and sometimes it's hard, and you know, to, to really think of these time frames, and I get that. But if you imagine that mass meteor or asteroid or whatever struck the Earth at the end of the fifth mass extinction off the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, yeah, there was mass die-off right in that vicinity, right in that area, probably in the United States, what is today the United States, North America, and South America. But the animals on the other side of the planet, it still took thousands of years for them to eventually die off mass starvation, you know, starvation. You had changes again in the climate. So sure, maybe a lot of the megafauna died off early on, but things were hanging on, things were hanging on. And then eventually they would die off because they couldn't find a way to survive it. So even in that context today, we are losing species faster than that mass extinction event. The natural background rate of extinction, and I said this in episode zero, so it's it's like one to two species a year naturally go extinct. It's just part of the, the natural cycle of life, right? So when you look at the other mass extinction events, the background extinction rate was anywhere from 10 to 20 times what it normally should be. So what has scientists so alarmed today is the background extinction rates like anywhere from it's around 50 times what it should be. So that when you compare it to the geological history, of course, scientists are alarmed. Of course, scientists are screaming from the hilltops to a small audience. It, 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 it just is. This should be in the daily news, but it's not. It's not. And it, it's just like we're seeing animals. And I'm going to go over some of the animals that got went extinct in the past year. It's, it, it's not sustainable, right? This is not a sustainable rate. And I'm going to explain some more of that. Because recently I read a report. It's called the Living Planet Index. And this is produced by the Convention of Biological Diversity, which was formed 10 years ago to try to reduce the loss of not only species, but 
the mass of mammals or mammals, the mass of animals we share this planet with. So what they've done is they've, they've went and looked at 5,000 or close to 4,500 different species. And they looked at populations and across taxa. So they're looking at mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, and reptiles. And they took these, these species as a representation of what's going on around the planet. And they formed this global living planet index. And roughly in the last 50 years, so since 1970, we have lost close to it's 68% of abundance of those species. So you take a population and, and we know this varies by population of animals, but just to, so just to give you an example, if we go and look at African elephants, there was an estimated population of 1.4 million in 1970. Today, that's around 350 to 400,000. Okay, so there's just a representation. You have lost close or over a million elephants in those 50 years. Okay, so you're seeing that not just in the megafauna, you're seeing this all the way down to insect populations. So the populations of animals are getting smaller and smaller and smaller due to human pressure. So that's this global living planet index. Now, why is this so troubling? It is because one of the things we, we talk a lot about is the tree of life, but also these, these very intricate, complicated food webs. It used to be the food tree. That, that is no longer representative of what is going on in nature. You have these food webs where different species are dependent on each other to maintain a healthy ecosystem. So one of the things is, is, is we're not thinking about, and, and these scientists are screaming, is microbiologists. So the, the microbes in the soil, right, very critical to life, very critical to soil nutrients, very critical to, to plant growth, trees, which in turn feed all these different animals, which in turn feed other animals. So there's this whole dependent cycle from the microbes in the soil all the way to the top of these canopies of these trees, you know, and, and depending on all these different ecosystems. Then you have obviously microbes in the oceans, and, and then that's a whole nother discussion. So they're all dependent on each other. Then, you you know, just to give you some examples of, of how complicated this is, and, and, and some of the animals we've covered, you know, they, one of the fun things we always discover is like these mutualistic relationships between animals where their survival kind of depends on each other. And it, it has taken thousands of years to develop these relationships that are rapidly deteriorating in the last like one to 200 years with, with human explosion, you know, around the planet, but like symbiosis so symbiosis is this mutualistic relationship when two different organisms or species, you know, work together and they each benefit from this. And we've covered this in a couple, couple animals. And one example is I always go back to one of my favorite episodes. It was early on, but the honey badger just, I still laugh. I still laugh at that animal. It just, it's got a, a neat niche in Africa, survives in, in that harsh environment. 
but it has a mutualistic relationship, or they believe it does, with the honey guide bird, where it, it's the bird can't cannot get to the honey, right? But it is thought, and, and they still need to do some more research on this if you really dig into it. But it's thought that the this honey guide bird guides the honey badger to the bees. So then the honey badger does his thing or her thing, destroys the hive or breaks into the hive. And then the, the honey guide bird can get at some of the food there. So that is an example of species working together. One that totally blew my mind were, was our sloth episode. It just oh, always makes me smile. But sloths have, have this really interesting mutualistic relationship so on sloths, if you ever see, and, and I believe David Attenborough's Planet Earth 2 was one of them, where they show sloths. And, and the sloths, you can look at pictures. They, it looks like they have green, that their fur's green. Well, that is actually algae or fungi growing on their fur. Well, the sloths eat the algae. That's part of their diet is they actually eat it. But also there are these sloth moths that live in the fur. And they live with the sloth. So one of the things we talk about is how for some reason sloths climb slowly, because they're very slow, down these trees to poop. Right? And when they do that, these moths will go and lay their eggs in the poop. And then the sloth will go back up into the canopy. Well, as the new moths emerge... And then they, they come out as moths. They will fly back up and live in the sloth fur. What's interesting is these moths are thought to help the algae grow. There have been studies where they show when there was more moths, there was actually a lot more algae available for the sloths to eat. And so there's this mutualistic relationship, right? Well, what happens if those sloths go extinct? Well, those moths go extinct. Those larvae that they lay in the poop goes extinct. There's probably animals that are insects or other things that depend on those moths for food. And you're taking, you know, and, and then what, what the sloths do, what they eat, you know, how they help spread seeds, what they, you know, all the benefits that they do for the ecosystem. So when you take out one species, you are affecting many, many others in that critical food web. So that is that is always one thing I always look at and just oh, always when I when I think about it is it's every species is important. Every species has its ecological niche. And that's why we have to defend as many of them as we can. One alarming report that came out last year beat that really or the end of 2019 that really opened Angie and I's eyes. And that was Again, going to that living planet index where in North America, it's estimated over the last 50 years, a total of 3 billion birds were lost. Now, that is bird populations. Obviously, there's been a few extinctions or they think there's been some extinctions, but the biomass of all the population of birds in North America, over 30% of it was lost in the last 50 years. Now that's alarming because birds are such a critical bioindicator for a healthy ecosystem. And they are so critical in maintaining healthy ecosystems. 
we, we talk about seed dispersal. I, I, I can't hammer that enough, how important that is for other trees and plants. Birds, you know, eat insects, they help pollinate, they, they do so many other things, you know, they're food sources for other animals. So again, with that loss, that massive loss of biomass, those, those, those animals, it is having a negative effect on the ecosystem. It is, you know, we're starting to see some of this with, with plants going extinct now. It, it, it's just, it's very alarming. It just kind of shows, you know, this complex web of life where from our oceans to our terrestrial landscapes are all under threat. They're all under threat. And that is why I'm now of the belief that, that we're really endangering humanity, homo sapiens. Now, can I say humans are going to go extinct? If we keep this up, sure. I believe if we just totally ignored all the warnings, totally went and kept doing what we're doing, humans would eventually go extinct. We're we're on that trajectory now. Will that happen? No. I'm sure the more wealthier nations will survive this somehow of what's coming. But when we interview our experts, and if you listen to the interviews, we've been asking them, you know, the last year or so, what's the greatest threat to biodiversity on the planet? Almost every single one comes back with climate change. And now I've noticed a trend where almost all of them are saying humans are now at risk of extinction. So, you know, is that extreme? I think so. I think it's extreme because I believe there'll be a point where we'd wake up and some people would survive or find a way to survive. But what I think is on the horizon for us, I think you're going to see mass starvation in our lifetime. You're going to see a lot of lot more wars between countries over resources, over water, over land to to grow food. I think you're going to see incredible, immense human suffering. I think we're going to see human suffering like we've never seen it before if we can't reverse these trends. One of the things I know we're seeing is like desertification. The Sahara Desert is growing each and every year because of climate change, over farming, reduction of forests and stuff in that part of the world. We're going to start seeing that on a mass scale. I'm going to talk about the the Amazon here in a minute. But the planet only has so many resources. There's only so much land to grow food, crops, livestock. Now we're going to the oceans and we're seeing aquaculture grow. There's only so many fish. I'm going to talk about sea spiracy here in a second. That's a, a new Netflix documentary that that I just watched and shows the destruction of what's going on in our oceans and how quickly those ecosystems are falling apart. There's only so much fresh water we, we, we have to capture for our use. There's only so much energy we can pull from the ground or use. Um, there's only so much there. The earth currently is being used at 1.6 of its capacity to feed us and absorb our waste. So let me say that again. Of all the resources on earth, the current rate of humans is we're using 1.6 of the earth's capacity. So it's interesting. I found this thing. You could Google it. It's called 
Earth Overshot Day. And what that is, is a scientist that, that science, a group of scientists have come together and said, okay, each year we use up all the resources of the planet. And this is the day where we've used up all of the sustainable resources. Once we go past this day, we go into an ecological deficit. So just to give you an idea, in 2010, the date was August 9th. In 2019, the date was July 29th. So it's getting closer to mid-year to where soon, you know, who knows if it ever gets into January. One of the, obviously the main drivers is, you know, we need these resources to feed, house, clothe, take care of humans, right? Today, the human population is about 7.8 billion. Right now, the estimates place that at 9.7 billion by 2050. Scientists are believing we'll peak at around 11 billion in 2100. At that point, we'll be using what, two, three times the Earth's resources that it's capable of. You know, the Earth cannot sustain us like this. We just, we just can't. We just can't. It, 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 there's nothing to give. And one of the things is, is like our wild spaces. People aren't really aware you know, we think of the wilderness, we think there's still robust wild out there. And in reality, there's about 23% of the wilderness now remains of what there was before human expansion. 23%. So that is all where all these other species have to live generally, you know, the, a lot of these wild species, obviously we have species that live among us in you know, suburbs, cities, things like that. But I always think of Asian elephants because African elephants do get a lot of the press because of the ivory trade. But Asian elephants are suffering. There are, what, 40, 50,000 Asian elephants left because there's no wild in Southeast Asia left for them. There's barely anything left for them to roam naturally. So they have suffered as they have lost their habitat. And that's happening all over the globe, all over the globe. So some of the, out of the Living Planet report in 2020, the five top threats to biodiversity, land and sea use. So ag, obviously we have to feed close to 8 billion people, is responsible for 80% of the global deforestation that's going on today. Pollution. So obviously we, we always talk about trash in the oceans. I'll talk about that here in a second. Species overexploitation, that goes directly to overfishing. We see it uh, in the oceans where global fish populations are estimated to be totally decimated and almost gone by 2050 at current rates. Climate change, which we've covered in this podcast over and over, and then invasive species and disease, right? Like we're experiencing right now with COVID. Now, looking at deforestation, you know, some of our, some of the species we've covered in South America, we, we've hammered on this, especially, uh, I think last year when the Amazon was, was burning again. And then in 2019, you know, when the Amazon was burning again. So in 2019, just the tropics alone lost close to 12 million hectares, which is about the size of Belgium of tree cover from around the planet. Now, a third of that loss 
was primarily tropical rainforests. And tropical rainforests are such a diverse, such a complex ecosystem that it is very alarming. And also it's a major carbon sink for the planet. So they're saying like a, you know, football fields worth of forest is gone every six seconds, just gone, just gone. And it's actually reports coming out of Brazil was deforestation of the Amazon actually accelerated in 2020, even with COVID. Of all the rainforest being cut down annually in 2019, close to 38% of that was Brazil alone. So a lot of politics down there. It's, you know, their president's in the news. He has accelerated the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. The next country was the Democratic Republic of Congo, where about 13% of their rainforest, of, of the rainforest lost, came from there. Indonesia was next, Peru, Malaysia, and then 32% were other countries around the world. So the Amazon should be and is a, a major focus of deforestation. And this report came out last year. And again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for people listening to this. I know this news sucks. I know this news is not great. I've got, I'm going to give you some hope at the end of this. As I go on and on, I feel myself getting depressed because it it, it it's just it's so horrific. And it feels like Nothing can be done, but that's not true. We have made great strides in the last 10 years, and this is the decade where everything needs to change. So so bear with me as I get through some of these statistics, and then we'll talk about some of the good stuff at the end. But now scientists think the Amazon's at a tipping point where if we reach this tipping point, it's a point of no return where we lose the complete Amazon rainforest it will become a savanna. All of those 3 million species of plants and animals, not all, most, I would think most, would go extinct or they, they go away. Because the rainforest is, is just such a complex ecosystem that the reason they're worried is because it, it affects weather systems. And, and again, this is some deep, nerdy science, but just to briefly talk about it. The trees in the rainforest take in and give away moisture. So there's this, this, this feedback mechanism that's going on. So when you start losing that biomass, you start losing those trees, you're getting less moisture in the atmosphere. So it affects the weather patterns of the area. So with less rainforest, less rain, less moisture, plants will die off at alarming rate. And right now, the, the tipping point at the current deforestation rates is in the 2030s. So unless something happens, unless political pressure is put on Brazil, unless there's a change somewhere, we're at danger of losing the Amazon rainforest in our lifetime, it completely dying off and being gone. And that's why a lot of you're seeing this in the news now. Pollution, you know, going on to, so that's land use. So going on to pollution, obviously in July, we always talk plastic-free July. The, and it's not just our oceans, but our natural waterways are polluted. We drink this water. We bathe in this water. 
it does affect human health too. So it's, it, it's an area that, that, that is of concern. Now, talking about these microplastics, I just saw this in the news last week. Here's something that should cause alarm bells to you. And it's how pollution is impacting people. There's a study that just came out that they're finding microplastics in human placental tissue. I don't know if you've seen this or not. You can Google it. But they are now finding microplastics that are 10 microns or, or smaller in placenta, meaning microplastics are being car- carried in the human bloodstream and are being obviously passed on to the placenta. They don't know if it's going in the baby's bodies, but if it's in the placenta, you can probably assume it is. So these chemically produced plastics are now being integrated into human tissue. What that is going to do to human health, I don't know. I'm not an MD, but you can imagine carcinogens, these other things that we ingest day in, day out, we breathe in day in, day out, are now being shown to be in our biology, right? So plastics are skirts of the planet. They really are. And that's why Plastic Free July is why we believe in it, why the last three years we've really highlighted a lot about it because we need to reduce our plastic consumption. It is harming the planet, obviously, and it, it, it could have huge impacts on not only human health, but animal health. I mean, we know whales are eating these nets and other things in the ocean that are killing them and other species. So again, plastics are a scourge. That leads me to Seaspiracy. I highly recommend you watch this. I and Angie will try to vet some of the stuff he says in it. There's no reason not to believe him. And, and some of the accusations made in it, made in it on some of the, uh, the research that's been done. I will warn you, there is some horrific uh, killing of dolphins and whales in there. The, the dolphin cove in Japan where dolphins are killed because they're, they're viewed as competition to the fishermen. And then the whale hunts going on in the Faroe Islands is very, very, very difficult to stomach. But basically it, it talks about how our ecosystems are falling, our ocean ecosystems are falling apart. Overfishing from around the globe is, is catastrophic. You know, seabird, like just seabird populations have, have dropped by 70%. It's just, it's it's a documentary that that I believe everybody should see, because this is going on on land, and then it's going on in our oceans. So look out for for something in the future from from us. Uh, we're going to do some research on on a lot of what what's going on in that documentary, and, and want to bring that to you. But just recently, you know, going from oceanic to freshwater, you know, we just had Shoals Mike Balter on. Freshwater fish, a third of all freshwater fish are now at risk of extinction. So you can only imagine how those are going to affect our freshwater ecosystems, which is we need water to live. Like, again, something we need to fight for and protect to keep these systems, ecosystems in check. You know, it's just the freshwater fish are critical, insect control. It's just everywhere we look. 
there's animals in crisis, species in crisis, the environment's in crisis. So it is leading to these extinctions. Now, just a few weeks ago, reports came out that Australia finally confirmed the extinction of 13 more species. And just briefly to go over this, it's just, it takes a long time to declare a species extinct. It's not, oh, we haven't seen it this year. They're extinct. It, it is like, I'm going to use the example of the Christmas Island pipistrelle. It's a bat off Christmas Island. The last known species or specimen died in 2009. They haven't seen one in what, 12 years or 11 years. And this is a small island. So they've been able to declare this one extinct. Again, this is an insectivore. We know bats are hugely important to maintaining ecosystem health, but also benefits us. I mean, in North America alone, bats provide, I think the economic impacts like 3.7 billion in keeping insect populations down that protect our crops, our food supply. You know, so bats are critical. So this bat was declared extinct. I've seen other species where they haven't seen them since the sixties. And then they finally declare them extinct because they're, you know, out in really remote areas, but just some of the other animals that went extinct in Australia or declared extinct in Australia, uh, the desert bedong, the Capricorn rabbit rat. Sounds kind of cool. Oh, I'm sorry. Southeastern striped bandicoot, the Nullabore barred bandicoot, the long-eared mouse, blue gray mouse, the Percy Island flying fox or the dusky fruit bat. Uh, a few other uh, mice that have been declared extinct. And then the Christmas Island forest skink, so a reptile that is now declared extinct. So those are the species that just in Australia were declared extinct last year. Remember, background extinction rates, one to two species, maybe a year, maybe a year. Now we're seeing, you know, huge. Here's some other species that went extinct last year by IUCN. The splendid poison frog, Central America, now extinct. The Jalpa Foss Brook salamander, Central America, now extinct. The lost shark in the Western Pacific, extinct. The smooth handfish, Australia, extinct. The spine dwarf mantis, an insect from Italy, declared extinct. And then you have, a, I mean, there's the bonin pipistrelle bat from Japan, extinct. The Lord Howe long-eared bat, Australia, extinct. Then you have plants that have been declared extinct. So the Wolseley Conebush from South Africa, the Golden Fuchsia, Fuchsia, sorry, the Agave Lurida from Mexico. So agave plant that makes tequila. Its cousin is extinct. The Hawaii Yellowwood, extinct. So 15 species in total on top of those declared extinct in Australia. So that's going on each year. Each year we are driving a lot of these species that have taken thousands of years to evolve are now extinct. And things like the vaquita, the Javan rhino, the blue-eyed black lemur, the black-faced lion tamarin, all these critically endangered species are heading towards extinction, you know, more of the mammals and stuff. The northern white rhinos that have been in the news, there's two left, the mom and daughter in Kenya, they will go extinct. There really is no way to, to bring them back a, a viable population of northern white rhinos. Now, the southern whites are doing okay, like I said earlier, but the northern whites are 
will be extinct and science can't save them, right? It, it just can't. Now, the final thing before I jump into some of the, you know, the more of the, the, the good stuff, to the feel good stuff is the other major concern is I have as a scientist and, and understanding genetics and, and doing some of the work and looking at immune genetics, especially from the reproductive perspective, is losing genetic diversity in these populations. And the best way I, c- I thought I could explain this is look at COVID. Use us as an example. And I've known a couple people that have died, unfortunately, of COVID in the past year. And my heart goes out to anybody that has lost close loved ones to this disease. I also know of people that have had COVID and it was basically a common cold. They felt bad for a couple of days and they were fine. So looking at COVID, you see certain people getting extremely ill and dying. And then you see asymptomatic carriers who have it and it barely affects them or they don't really even show symptoms. So you have that swing. That is due to our genetic diversity in the human population with our immune genetics, where we can withstand a pandemic like this to ensure our species survives. Even the most deadliest disease I can think of is Ebola. It is not 100% fatal. People do survive Ebola. And that is one of the worst diseases that could ever hit the human population. So those people that do survive, they have the genes that, that help them survive. Now, we're losing animals at such a great rate that we are losing genetic diversity in these populations. And the best story to explain this is the saiga that we covered way back a couple years ago. And what happened was, and this is a antelope in Asia, right? The one with the big nose, it, it looks like an ice age relic. And those big noses are because they live in such a cold environment and it helps warm air into their, as it goes through their nose into their lungs. Anyways, in 2015, Planet Earth documentary crew went to film this mass migration that goes on with the Saiga. And hundreds of thousands of them come to this area for the females to calve and have their babies. Well, as this crew went there, these calves started to drop dead left and right. Moms started to drop dead left and right. Within a matter of weeks, over 200,000 Saiga died. And they finally were able to trace it back to a bacterial infection that started in that nose that was spread, went through the population, almost wiped them all out. What we know, now what we know of Saiga is back in 1900, there was less than a thousand of them left they have lost a lot of their genetic diversity. So their genetics were pretty uniform and it just took one disease to almost wipe them off the face of the earth. That is why seeing this great mass loss of biomass is such a concern. And when you get down to populations of 10, 20, 30, you pretty much are going to wipe that species out. We see it with the black-footed ferret. Again, that was down to what, 1918 animals. And while they've been reintroduced and it is a very good conservation success story, 
they are struggling in the wild. They are having problems in the wild. Again, they don't have the genetic diversity that is, leads to behavioral issues, other things. So how do we reverse these trends? What do we do? Well, you're listening to this podcast, so that's a great first step. Or many of you work in conservation. Many of you work at zoos. Many of you are in school. Many of you just donate, which is great. But what we need to do is we need to educate the masses. We need to become, this movement needs to grow and grow and grow. There are so many people out there fighting, conservation heroes. Every person we interview, even the children we interview, warms my heart because they are fighting for animals. And it makes me realize I'm definitely not alone, but it should make the masses realize that there is or are a lot of people out there fighting. One of my favorites was Mike Veal. A shout out to him, Global Conservation Force, episode 144. He was a zookeeper at the San Diego Zoo, is still a keeper, I believe, at the San Diego Zoo. Saw what's going on around the world with rhino poaching, wanted to do something about it, and he is. He is. One of my heroes, Jill Robinson, that Angie interviewed with Animals Asia, episode 166. She went to Asia and she has been a force in ending bear bile farming, which is horrific practice and animals suffer horribly through it. And she is making great roads in that. Someone I love dearly just really inspired me, Dr. Rebecca Cliff, the Sloth Conservation Foundation. She was a graduate student, graduated, loved sloths. She founded the Sloth Conservation Foundation. She lives in Costa Rica. She's fighting for these animals, episode 190. Someone else I love dearly, Julian Fennessy. We, we had a good talk. He cracked me up. He is a founder of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, living there in Africa, episode 168. So many more. I mean, there's so many more of these, these people out there bringing these issues to light. And I know this news is horrific. It isn't nice. It isn't good. But we can't sit by and watch it happen. So we support our conservation heroes, these conservation organizations out there. Angie and I are doing our part as educators. We're hoping we bring our enthusiasm. We hope we are bringing important information that you can share and you're learning. We learn, you know, we continually learn each week as we do this and we hopefully you're learning with us. But, you know, what you can do you can help us spread this information. You can use social media to share our episodes, share these stories, talk to your friends about them. And the biggest thing you can do is make changes in your own life. If you can make changes in your own life, say no to plastic, reduce your energy consumption, reduce your carbon footprint, do the things that we talk about and we share on our episodes. If you can do those, you are a conservation hero. You are making a difference. Then you can go and do the extra stuff, you know, either dedicate your life like many of you are. You can go and volunteer. You can, you know, obviously make donations, go do beach cleanups or whatever else is in your part of the world. But, you know, I just want to thank you for listening. We're going to keep this coming. We're going to keep on top of these stories. We're going to share more. We're going to share the successes. And we're going to share some of the other news that comes out that maybe is not so nice. But we're in this together. We're all human beings. 
I have faith in us. I know we're going to do it. And I just want to thank you and stay tuned. You know, we're going to be back soon with our, with our species and, and other interviews. Take care.